church were treated differently despite their many similarities in spacing. More recently, there was a time when you could go to the mall without a mask, but would have to wear a mask at the airport. Inconsistency can be frustrating. Doing things that appear to be unnecessary can be maddening. But very often, and these kinds of situations will comply. Maybe it's because we actually see the reasons why maybe they're doing these different things and maybe it isn't consistent. Perhaps some of us comply out of compulsion, out of fear of others. But then I think there are also others among us who try to take a thoughtful approach. You judge each situation separately, and you decide to sometimes do unnecessary things. You do this not because you're afraid, but because you know the situation isn't worth making waves over, because you know your actions will likely be mischaracterized and misunderstood. This experience is something that Jesus has experienced. He is the Son of God, God incarnate, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He sees the reality of who he is and what he is bringing more clearly than his disciples in the crowds. And yet, in today's passage, we see him accommodate himself to the expectations of his people. Today we pick up in Matthew 17, verse 24. Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 24 in Matthew 17. There the disciple Matthew records. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So Jesus and his disciples have arrived in Capernaum. Now, as uh, Eric shared with you last week, after Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples, he was met by a crowd of people. They cast out a demon. 
Now, if we're assuming that the Mount of Transfiguration is actually Mount Hermon, I would locate them about up in this area, and Capernaum is down here. So they had quite a bit of a, a trip to get down. And as you might remember, Capernaum is kind of the home base for Jesus and his disciples. When they get there, they are met by these men who are collecting a tax for the temple. Now, it seems a little bit curious because we've heard about tax collectors before, but they collect taxes for the Roman Empire. These are different than Roman tax collectors, the kind that were hated by the people. These tax collectors were collecting taxes, funds, for the upkeep of the temple. And uh, when these collectors come, they, they go to, they probably were going house to house, and they went to Peter's house. And actually, if you go to Capernaum, you can visit the location where they believe that Peter's house was. So this is where Jesus and the other disciples were staying. They've actually built a church over the top of it. It's very interesting. Um, so they've gone to Peter's house and asked him, is your master, is, is, does, is Jesus going to pay this temple tax? And it costs two drachma. Now, these collectors aren't, this isn't just something that they've come up with, kind of a novel way to support the temple. This is actually following precedent of the law, which is given in the Old Testament. In Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half a shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 garas. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites, and here's the really explicitly temple part, and use it for the service of the tent of meeting, because they had a tent at that time, not an actual temple structure. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. So this seems legit. This seems like a legit collection um, to take up. And unlike the Roman tax, most of the Jewish people embraced giving to this fund. Um, there was a few sects that disagreed with this. You had the Sadducees. They said, you don't need to do this. There was this um, sect in uh, Qumran who said, you only have to do this once in your lifetime. But most uh, Jews agreed that this was an annual obligation. It was kind of a sign of Jewish patri patriotism because Jews from throughout the Roman Empire would give to this fund. And it actually bothered the, Ro the Roman authorities quite a bit. Um, 
They didn't want money being sent throughout the empire that was outside of their control. And they actually tried to put laws in place that forbid uh, Jews within the Roman Empire from sending these, these transfers over uh, to Jerusalem. So this is a kind of a real test here for Jesus. And the way in which the question is being posed to Peter, kind of acting as Jesus' representative here, kind of indicates that it's intended to act as somewhat of a challenge or test. Um, they say, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Um, now, maybe there is kind of just a genuine curiosity there, but it could also be that um, they're like some of these Pharisees and Sadducees who are seeking to expose Jesus and use this as an opportunity to say, see, he's a disloyal Jew. He doesn't support the temple. Well, if that was kind of their motive, Peter disappoints them because he says, yes, he does. Simple, straightforward, yeah, he pays it. And he goes back in that house, uh, presumably to collect the money to give to them. Jesus is in the house, and it seems like he must have overheard their conversation. And so when Peter walks back into the house, Jesus asks him, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? from their own children, or from others? Kind of a weird question. Um, but he's, got a po- he's trying to make a point here. And by this point, Peter's ready to play along. Because he he's, he's understanding that Jesus is trying to show something to him. Now, you think about the question yourself before we get to Peter's answer. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Now, we don't live in a monarchy. We live in a democracy. And so we think, well, fair is fair. Everyone's got to pay their taxes. No one gets any exceptions. Well, let's just say that we were in a monarchy and you were the monarch. And really, what you said goes. You made... their own rule, your own rules. No one likes paying taxes. And the taxes that you collect are going into your treasure chest. So with all that in mind, would you make your kids pay taxes to you? Probably not. Um, you'd collect taxes from the people you rule, not the royal family. And so, by the same thinking, Peter says, yeah, you collect it from others, not from your own kids. And Jesus makes explicit the basic implication then, which is this. Then the children are, are exempt. So again, reading between the lines of what Jesus is saying here, he's implying that he's exempt from this temple tax because he's the son of God. He's the son of the king. Now, in Luke's gospel, we get a hint of Jesus' different relationship to the temple 
when he records early on in Jesus' life how um, Mary and Joseph go up to Jerusalem with Jesus. And on their way back, they lose him. And they go looking for him in the big city of Jerusalem. And they find him in the temple. And when they find him, Jesus tells them this in Luke 2.49. Why were you searching for me? He asks. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So we see a continuity of understanding here from Jesus, from a very young age with Jesus to this day where he's being asked to pay this temple tax. He understands that the temple is his father's house. He's, he's making a strong claim. I am God's son. I am the son of God. There's also something else that he's implying here and talking about children being exempt. He could have just said, well, the son is exempt, the heir is exempt, but he's talking about children. There's kind of a, a plural idea here. And if we go back earlier in Matthew, you, rem you may recall how Jesus indicates that the disciples have gained a new status by being in relationship with him. In Matthew 12, 49 through 50, it says, pointing to his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus seems to be saying that he's exempt and also that his disciples are exempt. And beyond this, it seems like Jesus isn't really all that concerned about upkeeping the temple. And this is like really squinting to kind of read between the lines, but I think we can see it here. Where his kind of disposition towards the temple seems to be indicating that its ministry is about to be concluded. He's, he's going to fulfill it by, this, by his sacrifice. And in the place of the temple, this temple made of granite and marble and all this, he's going to put in its place a living temple made up of his disciples who are serving as spiritual stones built on him as a cornerstone. And you don't need to collect taxes for that. Now, at this point, all of us, along with Peter, might expect Jesus to say that he's not going to pay the tax. That's not what he says. Instead, he says in verse 27, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Jesus seems to be showing here kind of a surprising concern for offending others. And it's surprising to us because we know that on multiple occasions he's knowingly offended the sensibilities of others. You go back to just Matthew 15, verses 11 through 12. He was talking about how hand-washing isn't necessary. And he goes on and says, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. 
Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So Jesus knows that he can say things that offend others, but he's going to say them anyway. And the reason in that case is because it was necessary for him to make clear that the true source of moral filth doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside. Our hearts are factories of, of sin and evil. It was necessary for him to teach this, however offensive it might have been. But when it comes to this temple tax, the situation is a little bit more complex. Because of exemption wouldn't include those Jews outside of Jesus and his disciples. And you remember, this is a command that's given in the Old Testament. And so they should keep paying this tax, even if Jesus and his disciples are technically exempt. If Jesus says, I'm not going to pay it, this could influence others to stop paying, but to stop paying for the wrong reasons. The only reason why Jesus and his disciples were exempt was because of that special relationship that they gained through Jesus. It also could lead others to conclude that Jesus didn't care about the temple, that he didn't care about God's worship. Later on in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul give similar instruction to the Christians in Corinth. In Corinth, much of the meat market was made up of meat that had been offered to pagan idols. And Paul says that Christians can eat these because idols are nothing. They're not real gods. But he adds this caveat in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 11. He says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So in this scenario, we have a strong Christian who knows the gods are false and that it's just me. But the weak Christian can't drop the association with the pagan idol. So by eating the meat, the strong Christian is tempting the weak Christian to associate with pagan idols that they're having a tough time getting over. Paul's prescription is to, at the very least, not eat it publicly, not purchase it publicly. Don't do something that will cause your, your brother or sister to stumble. Jesus' concern here is similar. He doesn't want to confuse the Jewish people. And he also doesn't want to cause them to sin, because by not paying the temple tax, they, they wouldn't have been obedient to God's command. 
he makes his point clear in the way that he responds to, to this request to pay the tax. He makes it clear by explaining to Peter that they are free, but they don't want to cause offense. And so he directs Peter to go fishing for four drachma coins can be found inside the mouth of a fish. Now, this is obviously miraculous. Fish don't just have coins in their mouths. And sometimes when we hear just even just small instances of miracles, sometimes a bit of doubt can creep in our mind, like, did that really happen? But then you just got to step back and consider, look at this whole world around us, which was brought into existence by God's mere word. What is producing a coin in the mouth of a fish compared to all of that? It's nothing. The primary takeaway from this whole episode for us is that Jesus is yet again revealing who he is. And he's indicating that even through this miracle of, of the coin being produced for the fish. It's like nature is paying the debt for, for, for Jesus and, and Peter. He's the son of God, and anyone who comes to him will enjoy the privileges of being a child of the king of the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to Jesus and his disciples. The temple tax does not apply to them. Secondarily, Jesus' decision to pay the temple tax to avoid causing offense gives us something to think about for our own lives today. Most of us are not Jews, and even if we were, there is no temple tax today. However, we are familiar with similar situations. Situations in which we have freedom, but have to consider the possibility of causing offense. Jesus isn't above causing offense. He offended all kinds of people by speaking the truth. At the same time, as we've seen here, he avoids unnecessary offense, the kind which would mislead people or invite them to sin. When I traveled to the Near East 11 years ago, I had the opportunity to go into mosques and also visit the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And in the mosque, I was expected to wear pants not shorts. Wearing shorts was considered disrespectful. At the wall, I was expected to wear a yarmulke or some kind of head covering as the Jews require of men. Of course, as a Christian, I'm not necessarily required to do any of these things. But defying them would have caused unnecessary offense and led others to some pretty rotten conclusions about Christians. Just as important, I wasn't sinning or encouraging anyone to sin by, by abiding by those expectations. In American culture, we have cultivated an impulse to never offend anyone. But that's not realistic or right. As Christians, our beliefs will sometimes offend others but we shouldn't unnecessarily offend others. The starting point for our discernment should begin by asking this question, which I'm going to have up here. 
by avoiding offense, by going along with what's expected, am I sinning or directly aiding and abetting sin? There are times when the answer will be yes to this question, that I am sinning or aiding and abetting sin. And I think, you know, just to be honest here, all of us have had moments in which by just kind of going along with things, we have aided and abetted sin. We're imperfect people. And it's tough to live in a society peaceably when others, when our worldviews, when our values come at odds with each other. In our context, I think this question comes to a real point when we think about the challenge of transgenderism. There are people in our families, in our communities, who struggle with gender dysphoria. The experience of feeling that you are a member of the opposite gender when according to nature, you are in fact a male or female. How do we respond when a man or a woman takes on a new name and expects others to use the pronouns of the opposite gender they are now claiming? It's very difficult when it's someone you work with, especially when it's someone you love. I've experienced this even in my, my own family. We don't have any specific instruction from scripture for how to respond to this situation. But we do have the truth about gender and examples of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. Drawing from those, we can gather that it's not helpful to avoid offense by using someone's preferred pronouns. Avoiding offense in this situation doesn't avoid confusion. It contributes to confusion. Using a different name that an adult has chosen, while perhaps not typical of their gender, is in the end just a name. You can change your name, but you can't change your gender. We tread a fine line here, but a different name can be recognized even as you honor the truth. If you're trying to navigate um, these kind of circumstances, or if you're even someone that's wrestled with gender dysphoria, or you, you know someone in your life that does struggle with that, I, I'd be happy to try to exp help explore with you some, some wise options for navigating difficult situations like this. At the same time, there will be clearly times when the answer will be no when we ask, by avoiding offense, by going along, am I sinning or directly aiding and abetting sin? As Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and yet we live in the United States of America. The kingdom is infinitely greater than America. Because our first loyalty is found there, we are not compelled to be servants of any nation. The Christian is not forced to pledge allegiance to America or to stand for the national anthem or to vote or to serve in the military. At the same time, the Christian is absolutely free to do all of these things. 
there's nothing inherently sinful about them. And we should do some of these things to avoid unnecessary offense. Whenever possible, we avoid the offense that would lead others to think that we don't care about our countrymen. Because we should love our country. And we're free to serve it until we're drawn into purposes that are at odds with God's kingdom. And just for a point of example, this is something that Christians back in the 1930s and 40s in Germany had to wrestle with as the Nazi party absorbs the German church. Were they going to just follow the line or were they going to say, no, this is wrong? Some of them went along. Others said, we can't go along with this. Pray to God that does not happen in our country where we have to make that kind of decision. Um, And before that happens, though, we can express that love, and we should, even if we're free, because we're citizens of God's kingdom. We are not slaves to this country. As Christians, we are different. We know differences can cause offense. If we always try to avoid offense, we will betray the truth And Christian identity will become entirely meaningless. If we always offend others, clinging to the fact that whatever we're saying or doing is true, we'll obscure what it means to be a Christian. Jesus didn't always offend others in the name of of the truth. He was sensitive about misleading others. He didn't use his freedom from the temple tax at the cost of confusing others. He chose to pay it because it assured those watching that he loved Israel and that he loved God's worship. We, too, are called to follow his careful example. Father, in sending your Son... You not only sent us our Savior, but also our example of what it means to be a child of God, of what it means to be your sons and daughters. Father, we give you thanks for the freedom that we've gained by becoming your children. But just as, Father, we've received so many privileges in our salvation, we pray that you would help us to follow the example of Christ and His kindness and carefulness in considering others. Father, we, we pray that You would help give us the courage and resolve to remain faithful to the truth, but that even as we speak the truth, Father, that we would always do it in love and care and concern for others. And Father, even when we know that there's situations in which we're not compelled to do something as Christians, help us to continue to have that concern for others so that we would do nothing that would set up an unnecessary obstacle to them coming to Christ. Because, Father, we want to share your heart, which is that all people would be drawn to yourself, that all people would be reconciled to you. Father, help us to be faithful in following the example of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Lord, bless you this morning, and uh, I hope.
hope you find a way to get cooled off. <laughs>